6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 9 through chapter 14. Well, this is the concluding session of our exploration of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'd like to start with the first verse in Hebrew to remind us that we're dealing with a translation, not only different language, but many, many idioms uh, taken advantage of that are really foreign to our ears. But the words of the preacher, the son of David, the preacher, uh, the, the word is koaleth in the Hebrew, which uh, means the, like the assembler, someone calling an assembly is what it really means. And so call the preacher here, and that word when translated into Greek from which we get the word Ecclesiastes. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. And, and uh, the most competent scholars, we believe, uh, attribute this to Solomon. It was fashionable for a while for some people to try to question that, but most of those criticisms have been um, at more than adequately refuted. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit the man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? This is the opening verse and essentially the closing verse of the book. And many people who, uh, seeing that and reading it superficially, regard the writer as pessimistic, cynical. But uh, one of the things that uh, we've tried to, to glean from this, our review of this, these 12 chapters, is that there's far more here than most people catch, because Solomon is speaking from human wisdom and focusing on that which is under the sun. But he does take his discussion beyond that. Well, just to review a little bit, the uh, I say it's the Greek Ecclesia that from which we la- get, get the Latin name, which is our English derivative. And it's Solomon's Sermon on the Natural Man's Quest for the Chief Good. Unlike the book of Proverbs, which is just a collection, if you will, of, of ideas, this is a treatise, a discourse, that's been designed. It has uh, clearly organized component parts. And the conclusion that all is vanity is subject to some conditions we want to be very sensitive to. And Solomon is not cynical or pessimistic. He's just bravely honest. And if we watch carefully what he says, because he does look beyond life's ironies. And he does acknowledge divine control and future restitution before God. So it has more substance than some people really get sensitive to. All the way through, by the way, we're going to see Ten vanities. Human wisdom. Wise and foolish alike have but one end, death. Another vanity is human labor. Workers know better than a shirker in the end, is the suggestion. Human purpose. Man proposes, but God disposes. Human rivalry. Success brings more envy than joy, he suggests. Human avarice. The much feeds lust for an elusive more. You never get satisfied. Whatever it is, it's never satisfying. And human fame is brief, uncertain, and soon forgotten. Human insanity. Money does not satisfy. It only feeds other passions. Human coveting. Gain cannot be enjoyed despite desire. 
Human frivolity only camouflages an inevitable sad end. And human awards, good and bad, often get the wrong desserts. And so these are some of the, the vanities that litter the, the thing. The, the fundamental question that, God, that Solomon raises, is life really worth living? And he suggests in his first couple of chapters that life is not worth living. Apparently not, because of the, for four reasons, four main focuses. The monotony of life, he dwells on that. The vanity of wisdom. The futility of wealth and the certainty of death. But that's just the first two chapters. Solomon is a wise guy, very smart guy, the wisest of men, the Scripture tells us. And so uh, he reviewed his arguments, and from chapter 3 to chapter 12, he reexamines these four initial presuppositions, and uh, then he brings God into the picture, and boy, what a difference that makes. He realizes that life is not monotonous, but rather is filled with challenging situations. In fact, it's, it's unpredictable. You can't have something monotonous and, not, and at the same time complain that it's unpredictable. Man's wisdom couldn't explain everything. But Solomon concludes that it was better to follow God's wisdom than to practice man's folly. He also learned that wealth could be enjoyed if employed to the glory of God. And of course, as for the certainty of death, there's no way to escape that. So it ought to motivate us to make the most of life now and, of the, and make the most of the opportunities God has given us. So having re-examined those four premises in the subsequent chapters, he then can move to his conclusion. And he will present then, in the final couple of chapters, four pictures or profiles of life itself. He's going to suggest that... Uh, Upon re-examination, life is an adventure if you live by faith. And that's in chapter 11. Furthermore, he points out that life is a gift. It's in our challenges to enjoy it. And if you take that element, you can actually trace it back. It echoes all through the discourse, if you watch for it. He makes the point that not only is life a gift... But our capacity to enjoy it is a gift in and of itself. Third point he makes is life is a school. Now, last time that we, uh, our last session ended with verse 8 of chapter 12, the last chapter. So in, as we go forward and, and pick up where we left off last time, we're going to learn, pick up the last two elements. Uh, that life is a school and life is a stewardship. So these four elements are the final four pictures that, uh, Solomon uses to summarize this discourse. Life is an adventure. Life itself is a gift. We should enjoy it. Life is a school, and it's important for us to learn our lessons. And he's going to deal with that in the next few verses, and that life is also a stewardship. And that's the ultimate climax, in a sense, that it is a stewardship, and it should lead us to fear God. So let's pick up where we left off last time. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last chapter, starting at verse 9. And the main theme, as I say here in the, in the, in the next three verses here, four, ver, uh, yeah, four verses, is that life is a school. The trouble is that sometimes we don't know what the lessons are until we've uh, flunked the examination. One of our prayers, you know, I remember many years ago, I was in a situation 
It was, I didn't know the whole background, but there's a family situation. There was a Bible study going on in this home, but they're praying for the family, and, and there's some very heavy gravity situations in the family. And I remember the, 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 the guy that was leading the Bible study, uh, one of the things he mentioned in his prayer startled me, and I've never forgotten it. Though, Lord, that, that the lessons not be wasted. This family's going through a serious trial, and the details aren't important, but the perspective was interesting. I've never forgotten that. That when you're going through a, a whatever it might be, pray that the lessons that God would have us learn not be wasted. <laughs> For no other reason, we'd rather not go through it again. See, God does teach us primarily from His Word, but He also teaches us from the creation, from history, and from our own trials. Solomon's going to examine some of the characteristics of his own work uh, as a teacher of God's truth. He says, I'm moreover... Because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Now it's interesting that Solomon speaks of this, because Solomon indeed wrote, what, 3,000 proverbs, uh, according to the Scripture. And of course, not all of them, but many of them we have in the book of Proverbs. Some of those proverbs are not Psalms, but most of them are. Uh, and obviously the king, he's not a, a writer, he's the king, and he's also the author of these proverbs. And so he, they reflect many of his conclusions. He says, uh, and he set out in order many proverbs. He, his, his teaching was orderly. He studied the, the situation and uh, ordered his uh, uh, conclusion in an in a orderly fashion. And uh, we may, as we go through, uh, we may not fully understand all the order, but we certainly recognize that there is an arrangement uh, just the same. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find out acceptable words. That which was written was upright, even words of truth. Now, Solomon was careful in his uh, teaching and his preaching. If we go through the Ecclesiastes, we stumble here and there because it uses Hebrew idioms that we may not be familiar with, but clearly it wasn't casually written. It was thought through. And he uses uh, acceptable words, it says here. That actually means pleasing or gracious words uh, that would win the attention, of course, of their listeners or readers. But it's interesting, too. He never diluted his message or flattered his congregation. He always used upright words of truth, and that's exactly what he extols in Proverbs, the eighth chapter of Proverbs, which emphasizes that. And just that, in that sense, it's just like our Lord Jesus Christ, who is recorded in John chapter one as combining grace and truth and so forth. In verse 11, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Solomon, by the way, is in effect claiming that his words were inspired, given by God, the one shepherd. It's interesting, as we stumble through Ecclesiastes, some of its difficulties, to remember that it is part of the Septuagint translation. And even though on the one hand it's man's knowledge or man's viewpoint spread, it is part of the Septuagint translation, which that was when in the three centuries before Christ's ministry, uh, was, that was when the Hebrew scriptures were translated from Hebrew to Greek, and we have copies of that. And it's very valuable because it was translated by Hebrew experts back in the third century before Christ into the precision of Greek. So it's a very useful thing. But the main point of the Septuagint translation, it became the Bible for the New Testament period. When you find people in the New Testament quoting from this, the Old Testament, they're more often than not, they're quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And so that, in effect, is an authentication of that package, if you will. 
It became the Christian's Bible, so much so that in 90 AD, the Hebrews got together, and that's what led to the circumstances that brought about the Masoretic text, which is where our Old Testament is translated from. But the main point is is that it's inspired, and it's a, a special miracle of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, obviously, that enabled uh, men of God to write the Word of God as God wanted it written, complete and without error in the original. And uh, it's a very, very key idea. Even here in the book of Ecclesiastes, which what it says is not necessarily true, but it's it's the perspective that God wanted us to have of Solomon's perception, if you follow me. It's important to understand that. And if this, uh, I encourage you, if you have, to, to review our briefing package on how we got our Bible, which goes through with the whole origin and gives you a perspective of how these things come and what we really mean when we say it's inspired and so forth. But that uh, those those views include the Psalms, the Proverbs, and and the Book of Ecclesiastes, you know, because, despite its rather peculiar point of view. And uh, so, but continuing uh, now. Oh, one other thing. Um, in verse 11, the words of the wise are as goads. Well, I think we understand what a goad is, something that goads you forward. And as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. There is an idiom here you may not be familiar with. I can't resist diverting for a moment to look at Isaiah 22. That the words of God... Uh, in Ecclesiastes are alluded to as a nail. And it's interesting to me to notice how the Holy Spirit tends to use figures of speech consistently. In Isaiah 22, verses 23, uh, God is saying, I will fasten him, I believe speaking of the Messiah, as a nail in a sure place, for he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups even to all the vessels of flagons. So here again is this just using as a figure speech the nail in the sense of hanging meaning on that, or in this case, hanging the glory of God on. In the next verse, verse 25 of Isaiah 22, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord hath spoken it. Now here's a rather surprising little nugget tucked away in Isaiah that is usually missed if you're just reading through it casually. Backing up here now. I'll fast him as a nail in a sure place. Remember, one of the titles that John uses of Jesus Christ is the Word of God. That's the way he opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and so on. And in that same writer, John, in the book of Revelation, sees the writer in Revelation 19 writing with a name written on his thigh, the Word of God. And so it's interesting that we have here this phrase being used, a nail as a Word of God, by an Ecclesiastes. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, for he will be for a glorious throne to his father's house. We get, we can begin to see the linkage there, that the, it, hidden behind this figure of speech is a, a reference, an allusion to none other than Messiah, who will be coming on that white horse in Revelation 19. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, and so on. But then we hit verse 25. If that's true, if we, if we see this nail as an allusion to Jesus Christ, Notice verse 25. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, 
Shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed? Really? And be cut down and fall? And the burden that was upon it shall be cut up, cut off. For the Lord hath spoken it. So here's just a hint that the Messiah is to be cut off, to be killed. We find it explicitly predicted in Daniel chapter 9. But here it is also in Isaiah 22. I find that, I find that, it's just a little digression. Uh, uh, I, I think it's fascinating as you get sensitive to the fact that the scripture is one integrated message. You see evidence again and again of what the experts call the principle of expositional constancy. What they mean by that is that the same idioms follow through. That uh, we have uh, Jesus spoken of as a rock, the stone of stumbling, the stone that the builders rejected. And uh, uh, we find that that's how Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 can say the rock, speaking of the wilderness wanderings, the rock that followed them was Christ. Not literally, idiomatically, but, and so it goes. So it's interesting to see the consistency that the Holy Spirit, you see evidence that, that the re, even though it's penned by 40 different guys over thousands of years, these 66 books have a single author, namely God himself. Let's get back to Ecclesiastes. And further by these, my son, be admonished. In, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. <laughs> I think any of us have been to college, have had a personal uh, experience with this. Now at the first blush, verse 12 sounds like it could be viewed as a, as a negative uh, view of, of learning, but that's not really the case. What really is implied here is a warning not to go beyond what God has written in His Word. And uh, indeed, there are many books, and, 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 and that can be a worrying story. But basically, don't let man's books rob you of God's wisdom. In effect, the way the NIV puts it, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, that is, the words of the wise. So it's a, it's a question of prioritization, a question of focus, and that sort of thing. So putting it another way, these nails, if I'm going to use the idiom of the earlier verses, are sure and you can depend on them. And you don't test God's truth by many books written by men, even though elaborate seminary degrees test, uh, uh, you know, uh, you always test all men's uh, works, however many degrees they might have, by the Word of God. Our, our textbook is the Bible, and our teacher is the Holy Spirit. In John 14 and 15 and 16, there's just littered with verses that emphasize that. And the, the Holy Spirit may use a particular teacher to instruct us, but sometimes he, you, you'll get the greatest insights from sometimes the most uh, modest or humblest means. So um, often the people that may impress us as being articulate are not necessarily the ones the Holy Spirit will use to drive home a point or to bring, bring in an in, insight. And as we go, of course, there's never any end to the new insights and, and uh, uh, new lessons that we learn as we go forward. Okay, so then that, that's the schoolroom view. Now the final picture is one of stewardship. And from verse 13 and 14, that's what uh, Psalm is going to focus on. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is his wrap-up. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Some people have said that our lives are a manifestation of what we really think about God. If you examine your life, it will reveal what you think, really think about God. We don't own our lives because it's a gift of, it's a gift from God Himself. We are stewards of what He's given us. And one day, we're going to have to give an account. 
There isn't, there is a, a final exam. Some people are only spending their lives. Other people are wasting their lives. Relatively few are investing their lives. It was Cory ten Boom that said the measure of life after all is not its duration, but its donation. And uh, so anyway, verse 13 focuses on fearing God and keeping his commandments. And verse uh, uh, 14 is going to suggest that we prepare for the final judgment. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So that's the final conclusion. And so the book of Ecclesiastes ends here, but it ends where the book of Proverbs picks up. Because it begins in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says that uh, it's an admonition to fear the Lord. The, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is a, what does it mean by that? Attitude of reverence uh, and awe, if you will, to show to God because you love Him and respect His power and His greatness. And that's one of the subtle things, by the way, to understand the difference between praise, thanksgiving, and worship. Those are three different things. We tend to use those as synonyms. Thanking God, being grateful, is obvious. Everywhere we look, every, the more we are sensitive to our lives and what's going on and the creation around us, we have uh, innumerable reasons to be grateful. And, uh, uh, and praise may be a close kin to that, but there's a concept of worship where we just simply are awed by who God is. One of the most... Uh, profoundly moving books that uh, my wife has put together. She's got a number that have been very life-moving, but the, her latest is creating enormous comments. Private worship, the key to joy. Many very seasoned reviewers have come back in just awe. How do you worship God? Do we really? turns out when you really examine what it means, you realize we don't really worship God, and yet that's our highest duty. How do you do it? And then how do you do it? And uh, it's not it's not obvious. So I won't get into all that here, but I encourage you to take a look at that if you get a chance to. Now, the person who fears the Lord is one that is going to pay attention to His Word and obey it. Anyone that uh, say they love Him uh, uh, won't tempt the Lord by deliberately disobeying or playing with sin. An unholy fear makes people run away from God, but a holy fear brings them to their knees in loving submission. Oswald Chambers said, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Very direct summary. Prophet Isaiah says it pretty well in Isaiah 8.13, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And the psalmist describes just such a man in Psalm 112. You can put it in your notes and look at it at your leisure. God created life, and God alone knows how it should be managed. And he wrote a manual of instructions. And it's a wise person who reads and obeys. You know how it is when you bring something home from the, from the department store. You know, when all else fails, you read the instructions, right? Well, in this case, it's smart to start there. And the Bible is our instruction book. If you say you believe God, then it should result in obedient living. Otherwise, your fear of God is only a sham. The dedicated believer will want to spend time daily in the Scriptures to get to know the Father better and discovering His will. 
And that's how Proverbs really opens up with Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, by the way, this uh, this last phrase in, in, uh, in verse 13, this is the whole duty of man, could be translated that this is the end of man, or this is uh, for all men, the pur- purpose of life in all men. Campbell Morgan suggests that this is the whole of man. He writes in Unfolding the Message of the Bible, he says, man in his entirety must begin with God, the whole of man, the fear of God. So when Solomon looked at life under the sun, everything was fragmented. He could see no real pattern. That's where he opened the book, if you recall. But as he looked at life from God's point of view, everything came together as a whole. If you go back then and reread the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll notice that in the early fragmented, what seems to be pessimistic or cynical point of view, it's because he was looking at it from man's point of view. When he goes back and reexamines it, from chapters 3 through 10, you begin to realize as he puts God in the picture that it starts to make sense. And, uh, of course, the last verse is the preparation for final judgment. Back in chapter 3, in verse 17, he said, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. And in chapter 11, it said, uh, uh, verse 9 said, but you know that all these God will bring into judgment. So this theme has been echoed through the thing, but it's being, it's climaxing here in, uh, Verse 14. And see, man may seem to get away with sin, but sins will eventually be exposed and judged righteously. And tragedy, other tragedy about sin, sin tends to be contagious. It has a way of multiplying. Many seem to, many men seem to get away with it, but their sins will find out and be judged. Those who have not trusted the Lord Jesus Christ will suffer the consequences of their sin. And uh, Charles Spurgeon said, The eternity of punishment is a thought that crushes the heart. The Lord God is slow to anger, but when he is once aroused to it, as he will be against those who finally reject his son, he will put forth all his omnipotence to crush his enemies. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.